It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. James Nealon is inside a bland, beige-carpeted boardroom. He's sitting at a large round table, under the dull glare of fluorescent light. In his role as the U.S. ambassador in Honduras, he spends a lot of time in rooms like this. Today's meeting is in Washington, D.C., at the Council of the Americas. It's a group that promotes free trade and open markets. A couple dozen other diplomats from Central America and the Caribbean sit around the same table. It's March 2016, less than two weeks after the murder of Berta Cáceres. The killing is sure to be a topic of discussion today, and Neelan knows the case well. He attended Berta's funeral, and he's met with her family, promising them whatever support his embassy can provide. But before Neelan can get into all of that, the room erupts. A gentleman uh, stood up in the middle of it, and I think he unfurled a banner, and he said, you know, pointing at me, he said, this man has blood on his hands, and it was in reference to the Berta Cáceres case. A couple of men grab the activists and begin pushing them toward an exit door. The protesters fight back. One is shoved hard into a door frame on his way out of the room. And you funded the In Honduras, the U.S. Embassy is a powerful institution. It's capable of exerting lots of pressure on local authorities. But for some, that influence wasn't always welcome. Berta herself had been deeply critical of the U.S., and especially its military, ever since her days in El Salvador, when she aided leftist rebels there in their fight against the U.S.-backed government. That distrust of America's motives is shared by many of her friends and colleagues in Copine. For decades, America has provided financial and tactical support to the military and security forces of Honduras. The U.S. government has also through business development ventures and aid programs, supported private development projects, like the one behind the Awazarka Dam. Neelan says he doesn't mind being criticized. It's part of the job. 
But this kind of direct accusation that he was personally implicated in Berta's death struck a nerve. I guess I personally draw the line when people um, accuse me of ill intent. You know, all I can say is that it was always my intention to try and do everything I could to bring the resources of the United States to bear to help Honduras in our mutual interest. But in a way, those protesters were just amplifying a message Berta had been repeating for years. She often talked about the negative impact of the U.S., especially the U.S. military, on her country. The Awazarka Dam she'd opposed was one example. Some of the DESA employees she'd clashed with had undergone U.S.-led military training. This is Berta in a 2013 interview. DESA's chief of security, he's ex-military. And the guy who identifies himself as the head of DESA, he went to West Point and was a specialist in military intelligence. We're seeing that there is a connection in all of these mega projects, both in hydroelectricity and mining. There's a connection to the military. But Berta's relationship with America was complicated. She didn't really view America itself as an enemy. She visited the country regularly. She had family, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, who lived there. She'd forged partnerships with U.S.-based NGOs. And she'd even met with several U.S. Congress members and senators. She didn't agree with a lot of what the U.S. government did. But she understood that sometimes the best way to get Honduran politicians to hear you was to have people in America help deliver the message. I'm Monty Real for Bloomberg Green, and this is Blood River. Hidden away in the lower level of the Hart Building, where U.S. senators have their offices, you walk down a cavernous hallway, turn a corner, and find Room 125. Yellow post-it notes with little arrows drawn on them are stuck on the walls and on the front desk, leading you towards someone named Tim R. That's Tim Reiser. If you're down in this corner of the U.S. Capitol Complex, you're probably looking for him. He's the senior foreign policy advisor for the Democratic senator from Vermont, Patrick Leahy. And Tim is the guy who runs much of the day-to-day business of a very important Senate subcommittee, the one that decides which countries get American aid dollars. The second I walk into his office, he nods to a poster-sized picture of Berta's smiling face. It's hard to miss. The poster sits in the window, directly behind his desk. It's been here since almost the day that Berta Cáceres was killed. 
Reiser was among those on Capitol Hill who'd met Berta after she'd won the Goldman Prize in 2015. Having known her, even the slight amount that I did uh, made it all the more sort of personal and just a feeling that this was something that we absolutely had to respond to. Members of the Caceres family visited Reiser and others on Capitol Hill. They spoke about the threats Berta had received and the false leads that were pursued in the early days of the murder probe. What we saw was, first of all, predictable, an attempt to cover up the crime. It's how the police behave in Honduras and countries like that all the time to obscure what happened or to uh, frame somebody else or to pretend to be investigating when really nothing is happening. Um, And we saw all of that here. Reiser knew of a very specific way to send a message to the Honduran authorities. He could withhold the money his subcommittee controlled. If the Honduran security state couldn't protect Berta and solve a crime like this, did it really deserve tens of millions of dollars in U.S. financial support? And I think people up here saw this as emblematic of a much larger problem and something that could not be allowed to just be swept under the rug the way these cases so often are. As a result, Senator Leahy made clear that he was not going to allow U.S. aid to Honduras, to the government of Honduras, particularly to the police and the armed forces, to continue, at least not the aid which this subcommittee uh, provides until we saw a satisfactory resolution of this case. The U.S. Embassy in Honduras also offered to assist local police. Honduras is a sovereign country, and the U.S. can't just take over an investigation. But Ambassador Nealon told Berta's family that the embassy would try to help out around the margins. The embassy assigned a Justice Department officer to help the Hondurans with technical aspects of the investigation, such as telephone data retrieval. It also offered the use of the FBI crime lab for analysis of evidence. Berta's older brother says the presence of a U.S. justice official comforted him. He liked the idea that there might be someone keeping an eye on the Honduran police as the investigation progressed. Today, he believes that helped lead to the first arrests in the case, the ones we detailed in Episode 3. But others in the family were wary of U.S. involvement, and they remain so to this day. They don't necessarily see the U.S. Embassy and the organizations that work closely with it as allies. Berta's daughter, Bertita Isabel, said as much during a rally on the streets of New York weeks after the murder. She repeated her calls for a new, independent homicide investigation. She said the state-run investigation was fatally flawed and nothing not even the assistance from the U.S. would fix that. And as Bertita Isabel addressed people in the streets of New York, her colleagues were delivering the same message inside Honduras. This is from a BBC report. The sun's beating down onto the tarmac here, and a crowd of demonstrators, I'd say about 200 people uh, from Copine, 
the organization that Berta Kassan is co-founded, are assembled here in front of them a line of riot police. And what the people here are demanding is that there is an international commission of inquiry that will investigate the murder of Berta Cáceres. They don't trust the Honduran authorities. The Cáceres family and the protesters wanted a human rights commission within the United Nations to conduct a parallel investigation, one that ran alongside the Honduran governments. There was a precedent for this. In 2014, 43 students disappeared in Mexico, and the commission did set up its own inquiry. But this time, the Honduran government was not interested in more help. They didn't want a third set of eyes looking into the case. The Hondurans said that they did not need the Inter-American Commission support with the investigation because they had the FBI support. Roxana Alfos is a professor at UC Berkeley's law school and the co-director of the International Human Rights Law Clinic. She says the Honduran government used the U.S.'s limited involvement as a cover to try to derail a parallel investigation. The Caceres family decided to take matters into their own hands. They tapped into a network of international human rights advocates and identified several experts with extensive legal and prosecutorial experience. The family, with help from several Honduran and international NGOs, convinced those experts to dig into the case. The family members decided to move forward. And so they chose a group of five legal experts to comprise a team to conduct an independent and impartial investigation. And I was asked to be a member of that team. The group was called GAIPE. It's an acronym. And translated from the Spanish, it stands for the International Advisory Group of Experts. Its members included attorneys who'd prosecuted high-profile human rights cases around the world, cases like the war crime tribunals in the former Yugoslavia, and prosecutions of military and paramilitary abuse in Colombia. Roxana herself had spent two decades litigating cases, mostly in Latin America. These included extrajudicial killings and forced disappearances. At first, she was reluctant to get involved in this one. She was raising two very young kids in California at the time. Heading to Honduras to investigate murder and corruption seemed like a recipe for trouble. She declined, but then reconsidered. She says she felt an obligation to help. So in October 2016, she and the rest of the group got to work. So the first thing that we did was, you know, begin to compile background information. They tried to put the crime in the larger context of violence against activists in Honduras, and specifically against activists aligned with Berta's organization, COPIN. They focused only on a three-year period, from 2013 to 2016. And they began compiling a list of instances where DESA, the hydroelectric company, had threatened, harassed, or violated the rights of members of COPIN. Um, there were checkpoints, there were raids, there were just three years. We documented 135 incidents of violence. So that was the first step, understand the context. 
The next step was to look at the um, criminal investigative file. That meant trying to review the evidence that the Honduran investigators had so far collected. Roxana's team asked to see all of the tens of thousands of pages of the file. The Honduran prosecutors resisted at first. But soon, they handed over about 3,000 pages of it. Roxana and the team studied the ballistics reports, the autopsy, and the statements that the Honduran investigators had collected. We interviewed witnesses, people who knew something about the context or knew something about the day of or the threats. Um, And then in July of 2017, after months and months of requests, we got access to about 55 gigs of telephone data. This was mostly data that had been collected during the raids we detailed in the last episode, on May 2, 2016, when police confiscated the phones of four suspects and searched Dessa's offices. Those 55 gigs of data that the investigators got amounted to about 40,000 pages. Most of that was in the form of WhatsApp text messages. These texts would become the center of the case. Guilt or innocence, imprisonment or freedom. Everything seemed to rest heavily on those messages. And even now, four years after the murder, it still does. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Some of those WhatsApp texts were sent as part of a group chat. The group, according to its WhatsApp heading, was created to discuss matters of security at the Awazarka site. It included members of DESA's security team in Rio Blanco, as well as some of DESA's high-level executives and board members. These individuals were so sure of impunity that they texted back and forth and, and pretty openly regarding their plans to neutralize the opposition, to eliminate the opposition to the dam project. With thousands of pages of messages to wade through, there were a few obvious timestamps to check out first. For example, the morning after Berta was killed. There was quite a bit of chatter then. The members of the group seemed to be following the initial phases of the investigation closely. To Roxana's team, it seemed like Dessa was getting frequent updates from inside the crime scene. The message string from the day after the murder includes a text from a Dessa project manager who suggested he'd been in touch with a local police chief. He wrote, I've solicited the help of the commissioner. He confirms his support. He'll inform me of details of the murder. He also recommended we issue a press release to create some distance from these events. Then, just hours after Berta's body was found, Sergio Rodriguez, DESA's head of environmental standards and community relations, received a police report on his phone. The report included descriptions of Berta's wounds and the bloodstains in the bedrooms and in the hallway of her house. It also identified two suspects the ones that we talked about in episode one. They were Berta's ex-boyfriend, Aureliano Molina, or Lito, and also Gustavo Castro, the Mexican activist who'd also been wounded in the attack. Sergio forwarded the report to the others on the DESA group chat. Roxana says telephone data showed that the report came directly from police in Santa Barbara, the province where the Aguazarca Dam site was located. That, that information is highly confidential. There is no reason or justification that law enforcement should share their preliminary conclusions regarding a, a murder with a company. <laughs> but it was completely consistent with the relationship that the company had established with the police The company treated the police like their private army. But the messages didn't just show a connection to local law enforcement. They also revealed that DESA executives were in contact with the Minister of Security himself. A DESA executive reported on the group chat that the minister had assured the company that the murder was being treated as a lío de faldas, or loosely translated, a skirt problem. A simple crime of passion, nothing more. 
Roxana's team would trace the WhatsApp messages back in time for years. Those text messages allowed them to sketch a detailed narrative, the story of what they describe as a long-running and sinister corporate conspiracy. You have a treasure trove of evidence in this case because the perpetrators were absolutely sure they would never be held to account, not just for the murder, but for all the other crimes that were being committed. In November 2017, more than a year and a half after the murder, Roxana's team released the results of its investigation. The group handed its findings over to prosecutors. One of the key figures in the plot they outlined was Douglas Bustillo. He was one of the four men arrested in May 2016, two months after Berta's murder. He was a former lieutenant in the Honduran army, and he'd also spent a couple years as the head of security for DESA in Rio Blanco. Berta had known Bustillo well. Even though they were on opposite sides of the protests, they sometimes exchanged messages. Before she died, Berta complained that the nature of his messages to her had changed, from business-like exchanges to aggressive pestering that amounted to sexual harassment. In an interview with a Swedish journalist, she described it as abuse and called Bustillo out by name. Even after that public complaint, Bustillo continued to send Berta messages. In one exchange, he sent along a couple of pictures he'd found of her online. Who is this? Berta responds. Ha ha ha, like you don't know, he replies. A few more lines are exchanged. He tells her she's very beautiful and that many men must find her attractive. He writes... I like simple, charismatic, slender women who are strong and stand up for themselves. He says he'd love to spend some time with her. He sends her a wink emoji. Take care, beautiful lady, he writes. Berta doesn't respond to that. But the next day, Bustillo's back at it. Hello, good morning, and bon appetit since it's lunchtime. He sends a flower emoji. Again, Berta doesn't respond. Another day passes. Another. Hello, Berta Isabel, he says. Berta finally writes back. It seems you've sold your conscience and ideals, and you've turned your back on the people of La Tejera. La Tejera. That's the name of the cluster of homes in Rio Blanco, where the opposition to Dessa is centered. Berta asks Bustillo, are you not tired of being the front man for DESA? Bustillo had stopped formally working for DESA a few months before, but in the context of these and other messages, it's clear he's still involved in the company's activities. Bustillo replies to Berta, I am not a front man for DESA, nor do I even remember that company. He tells Berta she should encourage her people to stop being so ungrateful. Berta replies that she's pretty sure Bustillo remembers Dessa because he keeps repeating the company line. It's sad, she says, to see the role that you've been relegated to. 
Bustillo ends the exchange with a long string of ha-has. On November 22nd, 2015, about three and a half months before Berta's murder, Bustillo sent a message to a DESA executive. Roxana's team did not identify him in its report because he hadn't been indicted. They called him Directivo Tres, or Executive Number Three. Bustillo wrote to Executive Number Three, telling him, Complete the 50%. Prosecutors believed this was a request for payment and that Bustillo was requesting half of what was owed to him. Executive number three responded with a time, 6.15 p.m. He followed that with another message. Let's meet in 30 at Chili's in Los Proceres Mall. Bustillo seemed confused about exactly when they should meet. 6.15 or in 30 minutes? These were two different times. When he expressed confusion, the executive wrote back, Bustillo, get it together. This isn't a party. Have everything prepared because it could happen at any time in the course of the day. Roxana's team believed that this time period, November 2015, was when the murder-for-hire scheme was first plotted. This is based on messages and phone calls exchanged between Bustillo, the DESA executives, the accused gunman, and Mariano Diaz. Diaz is the military guy whose phone was tapped as part of another investigation into a drug and kidnapping ring. One of the people Diaz had been in regular contact with was Henry Hernandez. He was one of the accused hitmen. Their direct messages to each other seemed to reference the exchange of a gun and payments and additional men who could be hired to carry out, quote, a job. From the Gaipe investigators' reading of the messages, it seemed that this job they were talking about was supposed to happen in February 2016, about one month before Berta was actually murdered. So what we think happened in early February was there is an effort to kill Berta. A failed effort. The plan, she says, was for Henry Hernandez to travel to La Esperanza. There, Mariano Diaz was supposed to meet him and give him a gun. The Gaipe members believed the killing was planned for February 5th, but Berta's daughters were at the house. Henry makes it to La Esperanza. He sees that Berta's never alone. And he says, I can't do this. That next morning, on February 6th, Douglas Bustillo sent a message to executive number three. He wrote, Mission aborted yesterday. It wasn't possible. I will wait for your response. I no longer have the logistics in place. I'm at zero. He says, Mission abortada, mission aborted. 
por falta de logísticas, for lack of resources. Executive number three responded to Bustillo with this. Recuérdate de la cena. Remember the scene. Um, and then says, I think he says something like recibido, like I got the message, misión abortada. What does remember the scene mean? It's open for interpretation. I think if you look at that text in the context of the plan, it means clean up after yourself. At least that's the way I would interpret it. After Bustillo was arrested, investigators found photos of Berta's house in his phone. And the day before the actual murder, the chats suggest he planned to meet with executive number three. Hours before the murder, the phones that investigators believe were used by the accused gunmen show them traveling to La Esperanza. Around the same time, Douglas Bustillo was searching for pictures of Berta on his phone. And about an hour before Berta Cáceres was killed, Bustillo was in contact with the accused gunmen. These phone records and WhatsApp messages later would be used against those who'd been arrested up to this point. Sergio Rodriguez, Douglas Bustillo, Mariano Diaz, and the accused gunmen. In June 2017, a judge ordered that those suspects would go to trial. A few months later, Gaipe published its report, revealing many of these phone intercepts for the first time. But the report did not publicly reveal one piece of information that would soon become critically important. Who was executive number three? Way back in 2013, when violence was first breaking out in Rio Blanco, phone records suggest that executive number three was hard at work behind the scenes. Remember what happened in July 2013. A soldier working for Dessa's security team shot and killed a coping protester. Then, the same day, young Christian Madrid, whose family supported the dam, was shot and killed in the family cow pasture. Violence like that was a potential public relations disaster for Dessa. That same day, the executive sent a WhatsApp text message to his colleagues. It said, pay the reporter from HCH. HCH is the name of the top cable news channel in Honduras. He suggested a payment of 2,000 lempiras or about $80. The Gaipe investigators knew the identity of executive number three, but they didn't reveal his name in their report. They knew that before he'd joined DESA, he'd been a high-level military intelligence officer. And through the phone records, they could see that he took an interest in Berta. Sometimes, he reached out to her personally. So he's using her as a human source of intelligence. So he's taking the information she was revealing about her movements, directly or indirectly, about her movements, her concerns, and he was feeding that information back to his company, and then they were acting on that information. I mean, that's a classic 
intelligence cycle. Berta's family also knew exactly who executive number three was. They'd been hearing his name from Berta herself for years. And within a few months, all of Honduras would know his name. It's March 2nd, 2018, the two-year anniversary of Berta's killing. A white Toyota pickup truck pulls up in front of a federal building in the city of San Pedro de Sula. Federal agents in black face masks open the back door of the truck. They lead a man in handcuffs past the cameras and microphones of reporters. Police in Honduras have arrested David Castillo. He is an executive of DESA. Castillo is being accused of being the mastermind behind the assassination of environmental activist Berta Caceres. Most of the news reports include very few details about David Castillo's life, but they hint at an interesting past. He grew up in Honduras, but was educated in the United States at the Military Academy at West Point. He'd lived in the Washington, D.C. area for a couple years before returning to work for the Honduran Armed Forces in intelligence and counterintelligence. And in 2011, before he turned 30 years old, Castillo was named executive president of DESA, where he was in charge of developing the Agua Zarca Dam. On the day of his arrest, Berta's daughter, Bertita Isabel, tells CNN that the family is relieved that an accused intellectual author behind her mother's murder has finally been identified and arrested. Today, we can begin to believe that we're starting to break the bonds of impunity that were behind the murder of my mother, Berta Cáceres. David Castillo is a person that Copin and the family members have denounced from the beginning. Dessa issued a statement, again denying involvement in Berta's murder and defending Castillo's innocence. But Castillo himself has never told his full story publicly. He's spent the last two years in prison awaiting trial. During that time, he's remained something of a mystery, the accused mastermind of a brazen murder waiting to make his case. I did not order this. I did not participate in the murder of Berta Cáceres. There is no evidence whatsoever that could link me to the killing of Berta. On the next episode of Blood River, we meet the accused mastermind. Blood River is written and reported by me, Monty Real. Topher Forges is our senior producer. Maya Cueva is our associate producer. Our theme was composed and performed by Senya Rubinos. Special thanks to Carlos Rodriguez. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like our show, please leave us a review. Thanks for listening. 
Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.